into the party wagon and hold on to your pizza. Hello everyone and welcome to the Epic Tales from the Sewers podcast. We will be covering the stories from the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles from their comic book runs and other media sources such as cartoons and video games. Today we'll be covering the first issue of the 2011 IDW comic book series. Today we'll be looking at issue 1 from the 2011 IDW Ninja Turtles comic book. The story is by Kevin Eastman and Tom Walls, with art by Kevin Eastman and Dan Duncan. Chapter 1 opens in the junkyard. One side a mutant cat with an eye patch on and a band of seven goons, versus the other side with Master Splinter and three turtles. The three wear red masks, and based on their weapons, we can tell that they are Leonardo, Donatello, and Michelangelo. Splinter and the cat, we know as Hob, argue back and forth, but Hob tells his goons to waste them all. Splinter and the turtles readily handle some of the goons while Hob stands back. We get a description from each of the weapons and the fighting styles in three separate panels of the book. It's, they seem to describe the personalities of the turtles as well as their fighting style. Donatello's bow staff, coldly analytical and deliberate. Leonardo's katanas, militantly disciplined and precise. And Michelangelo's nunchaku, absurdly unorthodox and carefree. As his men are dispatched, Old Hob joins the battle and faces off against Master Splinter. The rats strikes the mutant cat with his walking stick several times in various pressure points, followed by a straight right to the chops. Hob falls and swears revenge as he then jumps to a nearby fence and makes his escape. The turtles, saddened by a bittersweet victory, and Splinter sheds a tear, uttering the name of his missing son, Raphael. We see in the next page a hooded turtle, maskless, wandering down the street. Flashback to 18 months earlier, a building with a sign that says Stock Gen Research Inc. Zoom in on a red-haired researcher standing next to a bearded man over a tank of turtles. The man is Chet Allen, who tells the young woman the turtles are part of a genetic research project, but he's not directly involved with it, so he doesn't really know why. He tells the young woman that she can help him by feeding them, and a rat appears on top of the cage. She's noticeably startled before she tries to shoo it away, and he explains it's also part of the research. He welcomes Miss O'Neill to StockGen Research, and she tells him to call her April. April looks back at the rat, who seems to stand guard on top of the turtle cage, and looks at her with a puzzled look. Cut to a close-up of a middle-aged black man with a mustache. A page comes over the phone and calls him. Dr. Stockman? Sir, General Krang is calling from Burnow Island. He's on line one. Krang is upset with Stockman's plans in his slow progress, but Stockman says that he's been making great progress on both the Terrapin Human Exo-Armor and the Rodentia Psychotropic Serum tests. General Krang is unimpressed and tells Stockman, I've got a war to fight, and I'm not going to accept any more delays. He apologizes to the general and says that he will. it will be worth his while indeed as we focus on a picture of the rat's face and fade out. Three months later, April has become very attached to the turtles, but not so much with the rat named Splinter. Why do you guys call him Splinter anyway? she asks. Turns out he was part of a psychotropic drug test where the effect is splitting or splintering the animal's nature in two. They explain it's separating out a capacity for human-like cognition from its instinctual animal state. April expresses her concerns about that type of test, and Chet diverts her attention by asking her to name the turtles. She says that the little one standing all still and quiet, that's Leonardo. And the one that's studying the bug so intently, that's Donatello. And as for the one gorging himself, well, that's Michelangelo. The feisty one in the corner, he's Raphael. She got the names because she was taking a class this semester on the history of Renaissance art. Forward to the present day, 
Our hooded Raphael is diving in a dumpster in the back alley for his dinner. He scores an old pizza box, but uh, unfortunately it's just not enough uh, for him to eat, so he keeps searching. The next trash can yields a t-shirt with the word Kawabunga on it. Um, apparently the irony was all too much for him because he just tosses it aside, just to keep looking. His attention is drawn by shouting in a nearby house. He can see through the window two figures, one a large man, one a smaller one. He sees them through the window. The large man seems to be attacking the other. As the one goes to beat on the smaller one, which turns out to be none other than Casey Jones, Raph breaks down the door. You know what I hate, jerkface? Stinking bullies. Let me show you how much. That's the first issue from IDW Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, number one. Since uh, we're talking about a new character today, we're talking about Old Hob. Uh, he was on the first panel in the first page of the new book, and I don't think a lot of people are familiar with him. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through the micro-series book number three, uh, IDW Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles micro-series number three, um, and is all dedicated to Old Hob, kind of like the origin story. All right. Uh, this was written by Jason uh, Sierramella and art by Dave Watcher. And I believe Old Hob was created by Tom Walsh and Kevin Eastman. We start out with Hob on top of a uh, on top of a building in a trench coat. Now Hob is a large gray cat with an eye patch, and uh, he's anthropomorphized uh, with the mutagen. So he's uh, and his origins are tied in very tightly with the turtles and with Splinter. So he says, "You know what our problem is? Humans." See, I ain't never had much dealing with him, and that's good. You ain't never been nobody's pet, and with good reason. I mean, look at you. You ain't exactly warm and cuddly, but me, I had plenty of dealing with him, if you ask me. We're not sure yet who Hobbs actually talking to, but he's telling him, I was a pet. There was a time when the only thing I knew and trusted in the world was a human. His name was Billy, or Danny. I don't know, memories from back then are all out of whack. Anyway, we got along like mayo and tuna. It's a picture of uh, Danny playing with a string with Hob, and Hob is uh, enjoying himself and lounging on the window. Plenty of grub, warm spots for naps, and as much playtime as I could stand. What more could you ask for? Hob is curled up as the little boy is reading a comic book on his bed. Everything was perfect until... Billy, get your lazy butt out here now! Hob is startled. Mother comes in. How many times have I told you? How many times have I warned you about this? This whole kitchen smells like cat turds! Billy says... I'm sorry, Ma, I forgot again. Uh, it won't. You're damn right it won't happen again. Where is he? Where's that flea bag? Please, Ma, don't. I won't forget again, I promise. Hob is grabbed up by the scruff of his neck. I heard this all before, Billy, and you still can't remember to change that stinking litter box. I'm tired of it. Stop, you're hurting him. She throws him out the door into the snow. No, Hob! Please, Ma, he's going to die out there. Your own damn fault. We see a picture of Hob in the snow, looking very forlorn at Billy. Billy in tears. No! The door slams shut. A winter day on the streets of New York City. And that was the end of that. Living outside was rough. No more laying around in the sun or playing with balls of string. The good thing about living in a city like this is there's always food around if you know where to look. Uh, the bad thing? You ain't hardly ever the only one looking for it. Hob uh, runs across a mangy-looking dog who just tears him apart, and he goes away pretty quickly, still hungry. I learned pretty quick that if you want something in the streets, you gotta fight for it. And when you see something you want, you better be ready to take it. Hob pounces, gets in the uh, prone position there to pounce onto some turtles who seem to be in some sort of green ooze. A snack's a snack's, even if they're ugly green things. Hob pounces forward and grabs a turtle in his mouth. But these ugly green things had mangy little protector. 
a rat. That green crap, he's talking about the ooze, burned, my, burned in my mouth, threw me off and let the rat get the best of me. The rat actually is Splinter, who digs into one of Hobbs' eyes and tears out his eye. Hobb, dejected, defeated, goes to lick his wounds um, while covered in the ooze and um, his uh, wound from Splinter. I'd been roughed up before, hurt pretty bad a few times, but even this was different. Something was wrong. I don't know how or what it how it was for you like they stuck you with needles it was uh, so different maybe but uh hey i ain't looking for sh no shoulder to cry on here the story's important you need to understand that the fact how this all started see now where was i oh yeah so i figured i was dying hop lies on the ground in a pool of mutagen and blood i figured i was dying but then i didn't all i remember was pain like getting run through a sausage maker going on is one thing and coming out is another a transformation takes place uh, on this page, and it starts with Hop writhing in pain, and then um, getting arms and legs that look like a human's, until finally he's uh, a giant cat man. When I woke up, I don't know what the hell was going on. One minute I'm catching dinner, the next I'm getting my eye clawed out, a stinking rat. And this, whatever this was, I was huge. Hop stands up. He's a naked cat man with one eye. Where I should have had arms, I had legs. Then things got really weird. Hey, Mr. Allen. And tell me how prey in massive city infested with millions upon millions of rats do you propose to find this splinter of yours? That piques Hobbs' interest. We see Mr. Allen and Baxter Stockman in the alleyway as Hobb peers through. I couldn't believe it. The noises coming from the humans flapping lips that meant nothing to me before. I can understand now. They were talking about a rat, and I knew in my guts that had to be the one I just scrapped with. Hobb, Hobb then uh, exposes himself to them and says, I can help with that. I just want to know one thing. Does that filthy rat have to be alive when I bring him to you? Baxter looks. My God. The next scene, we see Hobb in the lab getting subjected to some various tests. He's in kind of like a big glass tube, and then um, he's getting uh, tested with his breathing and uh, some painful tests, it looks like, with uh, a laser. Like I said, I don't know what the heck was going on. I told this guy, Baxter, about the rat and the turtles, and he seemed real interested. He said I'd be safe with him and that they'd take good care of me, run some tests to make sure I was healthy and I didn't have a lot of choices. Not all the tests were bad. Some even helped me get the, used to this new body. But most of them weren't so fun. I hated the way they watched, too. No emotion. It got me thinking maybe this guy's not all he says he is. I'd been cared, I'd been cared for in the past and it never felt like this. It'd been there almost a month, and every day I kept hearing him talk about this ooze or mutagen. When they weren't poking at me, they were looking—they were sure to be fooling around with, with one of the two. And you better believe I was paying attention. That ooze stuff was some kind of healing power, and it had the main ingredient was the mutagen that Baxter said was the stuff that made me change. I didn't understand nothing else, just a bunch of technical crap. This is uh, Hobbs actually looking at a vial of the ooze and seems to be uh, analyzing it. But hey, I knew leverage when I saw it. Bax, he thought he could do anything he wanted to because I was scared, and I wanted to make him think that, put him at ease. Well, I started thinking about a way to get out of here, to make some kind of move. I was done being his lab rat, and I had a score to settle. Your reflex and strength tests have uh, returned some amazing results, Hob. You're getting more agile and stronger by the day. I feel real good, Doc. Uh, how's about you let me out of this joint for you? I want to find that rat, right? Out of the question. We still have multitudes of tests to run. And, uh, with you out in the open is a huge liability. Forget it. Look, I still got that filthy animal scent, and it won't be hard to stick it to the alleys to flush him out. Plus, don't you want something new to poke and prod at? 
Hmm. Let me think it over. Baxter releases him as we see Hob in a uh, hooded sweatshirt, and he's uh, looking out on the streets. He didn't need to think long. He knew what was letting me go was a risk, but it was the best chance of finding the rat, and that was too much temptation for old Baxy. Bax said he'd give me cash if I needed it. I just needed to keep checking back at the, with him at the lab. But who was going to take cash from me, looking the way I looked? So I lived the only way I knew. That got me thinking. That rat could be anything like me. He could be a handful to take in. I ain't saying I was scared, but I ain't stupid neither. This life is good to be prepared for anything. Hob actually swipes a hot dog from two gentlemen as they chase him into the alley. They confront him in, in, uh, in the alley. You're dead meat, pal! A few extra bodies to throw at this could be a problem couldn't hurt. But what was I going to convince a human to join up with me? They punch him in the face, and then he ducks. Teach you? Jesus, what is that? As they pull off his hood. Some kind of monster! That's when it hit me. See, Bax and his nerds at the lab, they ain't scared of me, because they practically made me. But these other humans, uh, I'm a monster. One thing I know is the bigger and scarier you are, the more respect you get. Throw in some cash incentive, courtesy of Bax, and I'd have extra bodies. I needed to deal with the rat. I was going to make damn sure I wasn't alone to help us ever again. A lot of tough guys are lost without a leader. Get a scary guy like me barking orders at him, and it doesn't take much convincing. Usually there are some that need to be persuaded. The more guys I turned, the more powerful I felt. It was addicting. I was establishing turf and fast. Not long ago, there was a power vacuum in this city. Heh, <laughs> not so much these days, though. I can, with the promise of violence and cash, brought just about all the types I was looking for. The kind of guys who will do whatever you tell them to, no matter how stupid or dangerous. And let me tell you, there was no shortage of them. We were working the kinks out, getting ready for the real work, getting ready for the rat. And I can't lie, those fights were fun as hell. Shows a picture of, uh, Hob putting someone in a headlock and knocking out someone else in a big melee with a bunch of gang members. I went back to the lab to show Bax I meant business. I wanted him to see it and see my boys. He needed to know days of poking me and putting me on that damn hamster wheel were over. We can see now that he was actually talking to Slash, the, uh, the fifth mutated turtle. It's a giant slapping turtle, snapping turtle. His response is, no more pain. That's right, big guy. No more pain. Our days of being lab rats are over, you understand? Speaking of rats, we got the right right to go looking for that stinking rodent after my little visit with Bax. I remember the first time I saw him all together. This plays into the scene that we just saw together. I'll never forget that moment. So this is when Hob fights the three turtles in Splinter in the uh, first issue of Turtles. I knew they existed, but seeing them like this all together, that was a lot to take in. I had a score to settle with that rat, but it still got me thinking about things. They were a team, a family, and that ticked me off even more. Time passed, more fights were lost, and I started wondering, what did I have? We ain't doing this no more, Hob. You're not paying us enough for this crap. Look at this, we don't stand a chance against them freaks. Freaks, what do you mutts call me when I ain't around? As he smacks him down. You bunch of chickens. Any, if you had any guts, you could have took them filthy turtles. But you don't. So if you want out, good riddance. I ain't running no daycare here. Things were starting to become clear. But it was just the turtles and the rat. But I was different. I was alone. That's when that old saying about fool me once or twice or whatever. Yeah, well, shame on me. Old Bax made a show of his pal. He was covering his bases. And on the way home, I didn't fit into his equation and plans no more. Baxter shows up coming off a plane with uh, General Krang and two rock soldiers. He pulls out a pistol and shoots Hob right in the chest. I gotta hand it to Bax, though. I didn't think he had it in him to do the dirty work. I guess he underestimated me, too. Hob lies on the ground, looking as he's defeated. Then his eye opens. He thought he had me. 
But oh, nobody, oh, but one-ups old Hob. Hob pulls out a vial that he had on his chest. It's a vial of mutagen. Remember what I told you about leverage? It seems to heal him back to regular health. When I caught that rat, well, he was all alone in that lab, like a kid in a candy shop. I had heard enough when he was trapped there, and there was some sort of gold in the rat's blood. I took some for a rainy day, some ooze, too. Bax thinks I'm just some stupid animal, but I always had one step ahead of him, and now I'm going to show him just what I'm capable of. I'm done with these humans, these weak, pathetic meat sacks. You can't trust them, you can't rely on them. I got plans, you see. Big plans. And the whole city is going to shake with fear when they see what's coming next. You got two minutes before my better judgment kicks in, Hob. Hmm. Didn't think you'd show. No, not now, Slash. We've got business with these turtle boys. This is story is continued in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles number 23. But that was uh, issue 3 of the micro-series. So just a little background on Hob. So Hob is the cat who uh, was trying to attack the turtles in Splinter Attacked. They were all mutated at the same time, so you can see that their fates are sort of interwoven. So just a good background in case you weren't familiar with who he is. All right, dudes, and now with your Mikey moment of the week, here is the bodacious Andy Doyle. Cowabunga! Whoa. Cowabunga listeners, party dude Andy here with your Mikey moments of the week. Wise man say, forgiveness is divine, but never pay full price for late pizza, dudes. Cowabunga, dudes! It's pizza time. And now in a segment we'd like to call Pizza Time, here's Mr. Andy Doyle with a real-life pizza recipe from the Ninja Turtles cookbook, or a description of one of the pizzas that was either seen in the episode or in the comic. It's pizza time. It's pizza time, dudes. Andy here again with your Ninja Recipe Pizza of the Week. This week, we're going to check out the pizza kebabs. Take your toothpicks and skewer Roma tomatoes, mozzarella balls, pepperoni, and one other topping of your choice. Pick your favorite. Just no pineapple, dudes. Catch you next week. As a special bonus for this episode, we're going to be looking at Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Adventures number one. This story is with art and with uh, adaption by Dave Garcia from scripts by Christy Marks and Dave Wise. It follows pretty quickly, or pretty closely, I should say, to the uh, first episode of the second season of the cartoon show. We open with Leonardo and Michelangelo disguised in trench coats, shopping in a grocery store. Nearby shoppers disgusted by their list of pizza toppings. Let's see, bean sprouts, desiccated liver, wheat germ, yum, peanut butter and jelly pizza. Meanwhile, Susie the cashier is being held up by two men. One are with an orange mohawk, and the other one is dressed like a pirate. They put clubs in her face and tell her to put all the money in a bag. They don't take kindly to her asking paper or plastic. The two turtles, upon noticing this, take off their disguises and engage the criminals. They, the criminals' response was to throw their clubs at the turtles, which bounce harmlessly off their shells. The pirate takes out a blade, but Mikey tosses his nunchaku, narrowly missing the tough who ducks under. They strike an assortment of cans. Ha ha, you missed. But Mikey says, Think so? And blows on the unstable supply of cans. They crash and engulf the punk in a deluge of aluminum. 
Now the Mohawk Punk backs up against a case of fresh eggs, now brandishing a blade as well. He tells Leo to back off, weirdo. Not until I've taught you a lesson, says Leo, slashing the cases covering him in eggs. One egg pun later, Sirens blare, and the turtles decide to get out before the cops arrive. Leo jumps onto the shelf to cut the banner hanging over the aisles and wrap the punks up for the police. They tell Susie, the cashier, that they're in a rush, and she tells them that the stuff is on the house. With a cart full of goodies, they bound over the curb, bouncing off the roof top of a cop car and confusing the officers inside. A short time later, April O'Neil, the Channel 6 news reporter, interviews Susie about the incident. Susie tells her some hoodlums tried to rob her, but she was saved by some turtles. Or alligators, or... Possibly salamanders. I don't know. I didn't have my glasses on. Below the city, Master Splinter meditates in quiet in the turtle's lair. He seems yet unbothered by the teens discussing their various pizza toppings, like cucumbers and unadulterated honey, whipped cream and pickles, and Mikey's favorite, Chinese mustard and raspberry jam. That's disgusting. The turtles discuss the robbery, and then talk about their enemy, the Shredder, and how he is actually trapped in Dimension X after their last defeat. At that very moment in Dimension X, we zoom in on the Technodrome, surrounded by a legion of rock soldiers. Inside, the Shredder speaks to Krang, Bebop, and Rocksteady. Shredder asks for another chance at the Turtles. Tired of the incessant whining of his cohort, Krang tells Shredder he will send him back to Earth. Shredder jumps through the portal, which closed just behind him, flattening Bebop and Rocksteady against the barren wall to Krang's delight. Back at Channel 6 News, April is greeted by her friend Irma, a slimy co-worker, Vernon, makes a comment as the station manager, Mr. Thompson, bursts through the door. He asked April about the interview and wants to expose the rumored hero turtles for the menace they really are. April argues the turtles are actually heroes, but Thompson disagrees. He tells her if she can't get the story, he will get it, he'll give it to Vernon, the resident suck-up. Irma points out that Thompson's new girlfriend hates turtles. April seems not too surprised, but more determined than ever to get her story. Cut back to the sewer. Master Splinter, who is startled from his meditations, and wakes up with a NO! The turtles assemble at his doorway to see what was the matter. Their master tells them that he is a premonition from his rival Oroku Saki, the Shredder, who has returned from Dimension X. He warns them of the terrible danger ahead. At that very moment, Central Park, two muggers comment to each other on what a slow day it's been. They haven't robbed anyone in over a half hour. They hope someone shows up soon, so their day has not been wasted. Just then, a glowing pane of fuchsia color appears in the sky, spewing out a purple-garbed man in shiny armor and a helmet. It's the Shredder. As they try to rob him, Shredder is reminded that he's in the Big Apple. He attempts to command his foot soldiers, or Bebop and Rocksteady, or Rock Soldiers even, to take care of the thieves, but he's surprised that Krang has set him up empty-handed. The thieves hold knives to his throat. Realizing that he has to handle this himself, Shredder jumps onto the air and with a backflip onto a nearby tree limb. With a downward slash, he drops the branch onto his assailants. Then he stands over them laughing. Then he actually robs them as they take off in a hurry. Using his communicator, Shredder calls Krang to ask where his legions of foot soldiers are. Krang explains, You failed to defeat those miserable turtles and their teacher Splinter with all my help. Now you can destroy them on your own. Shredder vows vengeance to both the turtles and will show Krang for this. Knowing he must make his way on his own in the city, he heads for a building with a sign that says, Slash for Cash Gym. When he opens the door, he finds a large, red-haired man criticizing his students for being wimps. Shredder tells him, The master is responsible for the student. 
and then tells him that this dojo is now his. To some resistance, he pulls down a heavy punching bag, tosses it skyward, and shreds it apart with his gauntlets. The teacher and students bow and accept his leadership. The next day at Channel 6 Newsroom, it seems Vernon has some hot news to show Mr. Thompson. It turned out to be a story about a vicious wild dogs in the park, but really just Vernon getting attacked by a small purdle. poodle. Thompson was not impressed in the slightest by this. You took out a whole news crew for a poodle? <clears throat> he calls April into his office. Mr. Thompson's girlfriend is also waiting in there, and it seems they were just about to leave for lunch when April comes in. He tells April that she has got to go get the story for the turtles and don't come back without proof of some insidious turtle conspiracy. April leaves in a huff, and under her breath she says she'll get him a story, all right, but one where the turtles become heroes instead. Back at the dojo, Shredder is whipping the new recruits into shape. He thinks they're ready for action, and begins to bring a plan to discredit the turtles into action. Presenting each of the students with a turtle costume and calling them the Crooked Ninja Turtle Gang. They proceed to rob a bank, and one of the customers happens to be Susie, the cashier who was surprised. I thought they were such nice boys, she says. They rob a jewelry store. The gang leaves behind their calling card. The Crooked Ninja Turtle Gang, 555-5555. Just so they can get credit for their nefarious crimes. And the last caper of the day is they're leaving the scene on foot. The Channel 6 news van drives by. April and Vernon discuss what they were seeing. Clearly, these were not the real turtles, but it's close enough for, for Vernon. They were teenagers, they were ninjas, and they were green. What more do you want? Shredder, happy now with his plans to defame the turtles, contacts Krang to tell him of his progress. Krang thinks this plan will take forever and wants results now. Bebop and Rocksteady offer to go if Krang will send them will send them and show off their ninja skills by socking each other in the jaw. Not amused by the idiotic display, Krang warns Shredder, do not contact me again until they have your report. Goodbye. Leaving Shredder to his thoughts, and one place left to turn. So this issue follows pretty closely to episode one of season two. So if um, you're familiar with the cartoon series, you can see that this is um, part one, and then uh, I believe it's called Turtle Tracks. So that is um, our special bonus for the first issue, the first issue of the Archie Comics Ninja Turtles Adventure. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the Epic Tales from the Sewers podcast. The Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles were created by Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird. This podcast has no affiliation with Eastman, Laird, IDW, Archie Comics, Nickelodeon Studios, or any other turtle properties. This podcast is part of the Epic Sewers podcast network. Check out our other great shows, both turtle-related and not. Epic Tales from the Sewers is recorded by Justin Cooper, featuring Andy Doyle. Terrificon, Connecticut's number one Comic-Con, is back at Mohegan Sun on July 30th to August 1st. Meet actors and superheroes. Shop for cool stuff. It's three days of Comic-Con fun. Terrificon, Connecticut's number one Comic-Con at Mohegan Sun, July 30th through August 1st. Learn more at Terrificon.com. Everyone thinks because you're a zombie, you don't know good coffee. Well, they're wrong. We have very active lifestyles. It's not all wandering the countryside aimlessly or scaring passing motorists. And we all love a good cup of joe. And there's only one brew that gets my seal of approval. Deadly Grounds Coffee is my guilty pleasure. Bold, 
robust, delicious. It's coffee that can wake the dead. <laughs> With over a dozen different roasts and flavors, Deadly Grounds can satisfy the most finicky of coffee addicts. The aroma is so intoxicating. It brings all of my neighbors out of the woodwork. Deadly Grounds coffee. Coffee to die for and zombie approved. It's good to get a little deadly. Use the front door! Oh, they're so disgusting. <laughs>